0: I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdreemily.com slash schools to get started.
1: Our mission is to just continue to share this information and just be looking at this in a different way. We're just trying to support the evolution of not creating these rigid standards and rules that do put kids in a box and make them feel, you know, cognitively overwhelmed and shamed, and, and the harm comes with low self-esteem.
0: Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey, y'all. On today's podcast, we have Elizabeth Sauter, and who is a speech-language pathologist and has been specializing in social communication and emotional regulation and executive functioning for over 25 years in schools and private practice. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Yes. So I want to give a little bit more background so everyone knows um, Your experience and my experience and, of course, my goal for this podcast is to put all of our heads together and share all the things we've learned and all the questions we still have to help people just keep learning about our neurodivergent kids. So, Elizabeth strives to provide neurodiverse-affirming therapy, training, and resources, as well as an online parent course with a passion to make it simple and just sprinkled into everyday life as an add-in and not an add-on to everyday routines and activities, Elizabeth is also the author of Make Social and Emotional Learning Stick, Practical Strategies to Manage Emotions, Navigate Social Situations, and Reduce Anxiety. She is a collaborator and trainer with the Zones of Regulation team and a co-author of the Zones storybook set, Tools to Try, Card Decks, and Navigating the Zones game, all of which I have in my therapy playroom. (laughs) <laughs> she strongly believes in supporting regulation and advocacy for all individuals, and Elizabeth lives in California with her husband, two sons, a dog, and a cat. So welcome, and let's get started. Awesome. So Elizabeth, I wanted to start with um, if you could just tell us about your journey in becoming a therapist that works with um, neurodivergent kids, and I know we align on so many things of nurturing and celebrating and learning from these kids. So how did you get here? So it's, you
1: know, as I said, it I've been in the field or you said I've been in the field for 25 plus years. I think I've been saying that for a few years now. <laughs> but it actually really started, you know, at birth because I grew up with a sister who's intellectually disabled. And, um, and so she was two years older than I was. And, and actually, my parents discovered her delays when I started talking and doing things that she wasn't. And so, you know, I spent many years with OT equipment in our basement and in therapy rooms, including speech therapy. And I always knew that I wanted to do something in the field. I wasn't sure what, but when I discovered the... Um, career of a speech and language pathologist, I was sold because it's just so vast and complex. You can work in the hospitals, you can work in the schools, and it's just all about supporting language and communication and connecting, which are just totally my jam. So I fell fast. And then I, um, my cousin had a son with autism, and I helped to navigate that path and getting him diagnosed and his support that he needed. And then my two boys also have a squiggly path with um, needing support in school and at home with learning and regulation. And I've also always known that I had dyslexia just, you know, from struggling in school. And then also when I was became a speech, patho- speech pathologist, I realized that that's what it was, but I never was formally diagnosed until actually this last summer um, in my early 50s. So it's um, something that I now relate to immensely as a human. So this is obviously, you know, it's a career for me. I love the field of speech and language pathology and um, social emotional learning, but it's also a life endeavor with my personal world as well.
0: Yeah. So I want to kind of frame social emotional learning for anyone listening, because I think the term gets thrown around a lot. I think that schools sometimes see it as something that, you know, needs to be taught in a very scripted way. I know therapists sometimes think of it differently, and we need to be doing social-emotional learning kind of on the job, like on the playground, at recess, being coached in the moment. So how do you define social-emotional learning, and, and why is it so important to development?
1: So yeah, there's a lot of different definitions of social emotional learning and it is extremely vast and complex because it's really just like life skills, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all about the, and it's integral human development and it is developmental in nature. Just like walking and talking, we are developing the ability to process the world around us and communicate with others and manage our emotions and be able to achieve goals. So the Center, the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning, they have, it's an evidence-based uh, platform where they really show us the research and different avenues to teach this. And it's mostly focused on the schools, although they do talk about the home and the community environment as well. And I'm trying to do more of that area, but they talk about five different areas. They break this down into social emotional capacities, which are... Self awareness, self management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision making. So it starts with like understanding yourself and your own emotions and abilities, and then managing those to meet demands and tasks and goals and things around you. And then the social piece, thinking about others and the social situation and how to navigate, um, taking into con- consideration perspectives of others and empathy and all the things about interpersonal relationships. And then it gets to the responsible decision-making, which is the ability to think about and plan and execute different situations in the moment or also long-term steps over time. So this is, you know, as you can see, that's vast and complex, all the different things Mm -hmm. involved. And it absolutely can be taught, you know, it's, they're doing more with this in the schools as, you know, curriculum development and times for teaching, but it also can be, and in my opinion, it's critical for it to be embedded into a culture and just sort of thinking about how we are sprinkling this into how we are showing up because the, it starts with co-regulation and the ability to model and support those around you in being able to show how to navigate these situations and be able to be that reliable, attached, bonded person to then help the learners around us flourish. So that connection and then the environment, maybe it needs to be modified or maybe it doesn't, or just helping our learners around us navigate that and then just using examples and supporting them as they are going through life at each developmental state. Stage. Meeting them where they're at, though, that's extremely important, too, because just like walking and talking and any other developmental skill, social emotional learning can be delayed for people and especially our neurodivergent learners. And so it's important for us to not only figure out what they're strong in and their strengths, but also feel, figure out where they might need accommodations and support and then meet them where they're at and then help them with their individual goals based on their strengths and their interests. So that was a lot. So let yeah, you, know if you can you
0: No, know, I, I love it. You're reminding me of a common question I get from parents, which is, you know, does my child need a social skills group? And I always say, well, what does the social skills group look like? You know? And so I think what's so hard about figuring out if a social skills group for your child is going to be effective is figuring out are they ready for that level of skill that's being taught at that group? Like I kind of call this the learning zone or like we getting in that window of development where it's emerging, but they don't have it yet and they just need some reinforcement or is it too advanced and they don't have the foundation of some of the social emotional skills to learn that. So it may, you know, as providers, we can sometimes say, I don't think a child is ready yet for mm-hmm. that, but maybe down the line. And then sometimes, like you said, social skills groups can be very informative, like they'll teach mm-hmm. skills, but then if a child never sees those same children again, or if it's taught in like a classroom setting, mm-hmm. it can be hard for a lot of our neurodivergent kids to generalize those skills. So those are some of the downsides of of, of how some social skills groups are structured. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on um, your your most ideal social skills group.
1: <laughs> yes, and this is a, a, a I have a lot to say on this. So, um, first of all, the zone of proximal development is what you're talking about mm-hmm. there. Is yeah, like you meet them where they're at developmentally, and then sort of like you know figure out where they want to be going. Whether it's if they mm-hmm. do want to have more kids to play Pokemon with or hang out with outside of school, or if they really just um, want to be able to work in small groups or larger groups in school, figure out what it, their goals are, and then help them you know to go along that developmental path to meet those goals. But um, so I had a center in Oakland, California for many years, a multidisciplinary center with occupational therapists and speech therapists and educational therapists, where we ran a lot of social groups. You know, I, I learned a lot and you know, I would do things a little bit differently. We didn't do the like, um, you know, all fourth grade kids are all you know, 10 through 12 year olds come on Tuesdays at four o'clock. We were, it was a huge crazy process of um, meeting kids and, you know, doing a little, you know, check-in, interview, bonding with them, finding out their interests and like, you know, what they need to be working on or what they want to be working on, and then pairing them with other kids. And the, the tricky part time was can they both come on that day in time? But we were really, really adamant that we weren't gonna just pair kids together that were a certain age um, because they, we really paired them together based on their needs and their strengths, what they were interested in. And then we would uh, have groups that were play-based and following the, with some structure, because with multiple kids, it has to be you know a little bit of a plan that we can follow. And they would always help in developing that plan And we would do a hybrid of introducing concepts and, you know, what is, what does it mean to be part of a group? And, um, you know, what we talked about the zones of regulation in terms of the bottom-up approach to social-emotional learning in terms of figuring out what regulation is and the thoughts of others and things, perspective-taking and whatnot. But we always made it based on fun and interest and connection. And we actually did facilitate parent groups through that. That's why I got really into not only me being a parent myself, but uh, the parents in the waiting room encouraging me to blog and write a book. So that's why I've really focused on my work on the home mm-hmm. environment. But they would get together outside of the groups during the week, and we would facilitate outings, both within the we had a pizza place and we went within the building that we worked in. And then we had places where we'd go and we would meet out. So it would then sprinkle out into their natural environment. So, uh, you know, I think that, again, it's it's exactly what you said, you know, are they ready for it? But also, too, is it going to be the right thing for them? Because what I say now, when people ask me if somebody is ready, or if a social skills group is, you know, appropriate, or the right next step, I say, well, I, I, let's try to find out what they're interested in and see if we can do some embedding of the social development within their areas of interests.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because as we know, what happens when we incorporate interests is stress goes down, mm-hmm. anxiety goes down, connection goes up, and kids are able to work on things that are hard for them um, if they have that foundation of a shared interest. Um, yeah, So
1: we're really looking for that meaningful relationship, too. Like, you know, and, you know, these kids, a lot of them were really flourishing. They would just genuinely want to come it's like my it's my big feelings group you know and they would be able to be with other kids that need to process their feelings as well and and work on some of these things but you know they also some kids really just needed a little bit more like one on one and the bonding and embedding it with the parents in their natural environment
0: i want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me thank you so much for being an educator i see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day in my work as a school psychologist i know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students needs that's why i created two free resources for you The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdoctoremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I wanna welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremilycom tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to com slash tracker to get started. Let's shift to talking about school and the academic learning and how emotional regulation and, and of course, social-emotional usually comes as like a hyphenated term because mm-hmm. it, it's so hard to tease apart. You know, interactions and communication is emotional, and um, we, we immediately feel things when we're with people, and so... That emotional regulation that we have learning in a group at school, we cannot tease social out of it. It's it's a part of it. Um, and so I'm wondering how you think of emotional regulation and academic learning or being kind of ready to receive learning um are connected and, and how um how you talk to maybe educators or parents in explaining that.
1: I love this question because, you know, as a speech pathologist, you know, I focus a lot on social communication um, and, you know, Leah Kuypers and I, who I, I work with closely, who developed the zones of regulation. She used to work at my center as an occupational therapist and ran groups and whatnot. And, you know, we actually wrote an article and did trainings together on the link between social communication and self-regulation and we ended up talking about it like it really it goes hand in hand and Mm -hmm. and how uh, we actually wrote an article on social regulation and you know the the connection between the two because when you're sharing space with somebody really you cannot tease them out but i would actually like to go even deeper than that in that emotion regulation is really the foundation of everything because you're, what we're talking about here is first of all, emotions are innate. They come and go like clouds, and um, we can learn to be aware of them and then manage them and regulate the situation so that we can think clearly and navigate the situation and just have our own state of well being. But these, you know, if, if emotional regulation has to do with levels of alertness, your intensity of emotions, your interoceptive signals and sensations of how you're feeling these inside and how we're being able to be aware of them inside you know do is that not in my throat anxiety or is that pit in my stomach hunger what is that you know um, and then you can figure out do I need an apple or do I need to take a deep breath but if you can't figure that out then you don't really know what to do So it is the foundation of being able to ride the roller coaster, or I say like ride the waves of life and up and down and, you know, surf versus get taken under. And if you're not able to manage those emotions or even be aware of them, then it's difficult to know what to do, whether it's an academic situation or a social situation. And so this is happening, you know, it's a normal part of everyday life and, it really affects how we are able to show up in a small group, one-on-one, and in a classroom setting. So if you think about it, you know, there's kids all around you in school, there's the fans going off, there's, you know, distractions on the walls around you, there's the smell of the cafeteria food, all of these are triggering thoughts and feelings and emotions. And sometimes they can be quite overwhelming and then they can take away from our ability to listen to what the teacher's saying or the read aloud or work in that small group, whatever it might be. Um, And there's research on this as well. They took a group of kindergartners before they went into a more academic setting and they tested them on reading, writing, math, cognition, language, and a battery of regulation tests, emotional self-regulation and they got that baseline data and then they went off to grade school, kindergarten and where we focus more on academics and the goals with benchmarks and common core curriculum where we are looking really at how they're achieving and attaining academics. And they tested that same group of kids at the end of the school year at the same battery of tests. And it wasn't the kids that came in with the higher reading, writing, math, cognition, and language that did the best with academics. It was the one that had the highest uh, self-regulation. And what that is saying is that we really need to be focusing on, like, put away all the flashcards when we are in preschool and focus on emotional regulation and the ability to work in small groups and to advocate and accommodate for your needs so that then you can attain information in a bigger setting. And so I'm super passionate about You know, the emotional part of social emotional learning because it's really they're just hand in hand and it is the bottom up approach and foundation of it all. And fun fact, when you are using social emotional learning in school or home there at school, there's a lower rate of burned out burnout for teachers and at home, the home also flourishes not only with the child developing their social emotional needs, but also the parents being able to, we focus a lot on self care and self compassion as the foundation for parents to then also show up for their kids because you can't pour from an empty cup. So,
0: right. I always think of the emotional regulation ability to emotionally regulate for a young child that's four or five, sometimes six, going into big school is that's their container and if the container is solid then they can receive the learning but if the container is not solid sometimes the learning gets in and sometimes it doesn't and when you're working on those two things at the same time which most children are doing that at the same time in kindergarten it, it's hard to make progress in one or the other so uh, you know I know we're on the same page but I just want to <laughs> Reiterate for anyone listening that it's so so important to lean towards you know, and I've I've written about and talked about kindergarten readiness and how do I know if my kids ready for kindergarten and just lean towards that. How do they calm themselves? How do they ask for help? What do they do when there's a conflict? What do they do when something breaks? um, You know, and they're disappointed. So these are all really important things to observe in young children to think about them being ready for this group space where unexpected things are going to happen all day long. Um, And they, you know, will have their teacher that hopefully they trust to help solve them problems. But it's a really tricky group to be in for young children. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So some people probably know you and know your name, at least, as the author of Whole Body Listening, Larry. And so I wanted to talk through the history of Whole Body Listening, Larry, and, and how that came about and, and what it's evolved into. So how did that book, and it's a series, come mm-hmm. about?
1: It it was a series. It's now, we <laughs> took it off the market. It's no, no longer available you can probably, well, I shouldn't say this, but find it on eBay <laughs> or somewhere for like a thousand dollars or whatever. But I'm not promoting that at all because we really want all of that to come down, the poster and the two books. So I mentioned that we had a center where we did a lot of social groups and uh we taught concepts that would help. We were trained in breaking down abstract concepts like listening and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Cause we, you know, pay attention, respect me and you know, listen to me. It's like and you know, said a lot of the times in that tone of voice, like, pay attention and listen, why aren't you listening to me? But part of the what we were taught is like, maybe they don't understand what we're actually asking of them. So we were taught clear as kind and make the abstract more concrete. And so one of the concepts that we taught was the concept called whole body listening, which was actually developed by Suzanne Truesdale back in 1990. And she was just, she learned about this, or she developed it with a group of first graders And just asked what's involved with listening and they spewed it out. And then she wrote an article and it just became a a, uh, a well known and well used concept of breaking down what teachers are asking when they're saying, listen, you know, listen to me. And so we were doing that, and one of our therapists made Whole Body Listening Larry on a stick to just make it a little bit more fun. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, we should make a children's book. And so we did, and we made a poster, and it just kind of went viral.
0: For those who don't know, tell us what Whole Body Listening Larry was. Yes. And, and okay. what it, you know, just kind of just, since everyone, no one can see us, just describe kind of what it, I mean, I know, but describe what it looked like and what it was um, prompting kids to try to do. Thanks for... That's very important. So very
1: basically it's being able to break down all the different body parts that you use to listen. And we still believe in whole body listening, but we've shifted it into a very different focus. This is very much based on what the speaker would is asking Mm -hmm. so the old version the old version yeah it's more based on performative and compliance and conformity so the eyes you know looking at the speaker ears both ears ready to listen the mouth is quiet hands you know still and quiet feet on the floor quiet body facing the speaker the brain is thinking about what was being said and the heart is caring about what's being said so, And the heart actually was brought in not by Suzanne. That was brought in more by the work of Michelle Garcia-Winner in social thinking and perspective taking and whatnot. So we had a poster that had Larry showing all these different body parts and then books that sort of explain what it would look like in different environments in the school. And then there was another book for home.
0: Yeah, and I, it was very popular. And I think for many educators, probably the reason it was popular is because they really did want to be able to, you know, take down movement a notch or take down noise a notch in their classrooms. And the the intent to increase engagement and increase attention is, of course, there for all educators. But when did you start to realize that Whole Body Listening, Larry, needed a, a revision?
1: So we started hearing from the autistic population and it just was like, whoa, I didn't, you know, I didn't even think about it in the terms of, you know, this doesn't work for all people. You know, we just, again, we're thinking like clear as kind and let's break this down. We thought that was actually being super helpful to get kids to stop being scolded for, you know, not listening or whatever. So I took, we took a look at it and we revised the language and I wrote an article about it being a tool, not a rule. So like, let's not create standards, but, you know, still sort of thinking about this as... A way to break it down. And then, you know, I just started listening and learning and growing and getting consultation from autistic voices. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when that light bulb goes off, it's just like, whoa, oh my gosh, I can, you know, I see it in a whole different light now, and you can't see it any other way. And you can't unsee it now. I can't unsee it now, you know. And, and now, you know, thank, Goodness for you know people like you and Meg Proctor and you know Rachel Dorsey and Becca Laura Lori and just all the different people who have um, been able to share knowledge so that we can absorb it and learn and so just did a lot of deep diving and just really started feeling like this is not okay and you know talking to our publishers asked to have it taken down and then we had a focus group to just, you know, learn more and hear from autistic voices and have a discussion around it. And they said, well, and I said, what do you want us to do? What do you think we should do? Because we were fine to just have, you know, Larry be taken down and the whole body listening Larry concepts just go away. But they were, they said, well, that's not going to help replace what's already out there. And so we said, okay. And I said, so you're saying you want a new poster? Yes. And so we, um hired a uh consultant, McAllister and and um moved forward on developing a new poster and and you know showed it to people in our focus group and put it out there into the public to get some feedback. And now we have a new poster available for free on a new website. It's on my website, and it's on the everydayregulation.com website, which I've developed with Kristen Wilson, who's the co-author of the old Larry books with me, and then McAllister Wen, who is our consultant. She's also on the project. And we are in the process of writing a new children's book that will come out in, I know that this is, you know, you want people to listen to this on over and over, so I'm just going to say the date is 2023. Uh, it'll come out in the fall. So hopefully like in August or September for the new school year, and that's now going to be published through PESI publishing. They've been great. And just Mm -hmm. supporting this mission and being able to help us get the word out there. And that's I really appreciate platforms like this because you know we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes and we're both all working full time with kids and all the things and so now it's just a matter of letting people know take please take down the old posters there's a new poster that's focused on regulation. So still whole body listening and all of the same body parts but what works best for you because everybody Great. listens and learns differently. And our ultimate goal is to obtain information and learn, especially in a classroom situation. And so what does work best for you? You know, Just standing or moving or uh, fidgeting or looking away, whatever it is, we wanna try that out and encourage it and advocate for it, whether the individuals can advocate for themselves or we as adults can help advocate for them to really figure out what their toolbox for listening looks like. And this is that regulation, that emotional regulation piece that we spoke about as the foundation for listening and ultimately learning. And so we have uh, the poster, which is free, and then we have bulk orders that you can get for schools to just replace all the posters is what we're encouraging. And then we've created another poster that is what listening can look like. So it's all these different... Mm -hmm visuals of you know either looking at the speaker, looking away from the speaker, having music in the background, pacing, so that kids can see visually, I'm a huge visual learner myself, what these possibilities could look like for listening and learning for what could go into the different areas of whole body listening that's now focused on regulation. And then we also have some worksheets and um, lessons to be able to dive into the regulation aspect of listening.
0: Thank you for explaining all that, because I know people may listen in the future and want to go back and get some of those resources. And why I wanted to talk with you and highlight this specific resource and the evolution of it is because this is such a great example of all the things that we just have to stay open to and stay honest about. We are in a shift of, I think, you know, years past of only having neurotypical therapists and researchers and, um, educators. And now we are so blessed and lucky to have more neurodivergent and autistic voices to be able to explain to us what that feels like or what that sounds like, or if that, you know, triggers me or reminds me of something that I, I literally cannot do. You're asking me to do something that my brain literally cannot do. Of course, we do not want to ever cause harm or expect um, a child or a teen or an, or an adult to do something that they're not capable of, which would lead to, um, you know, shame and disappointment and, and negative um, self, self-worth. So I'm curious, just for anyone listening who might not be sold yet mm-hmm. on the evolution of why we would change it from telling a child to do it one way to teaching a child um, to figure out the ways that they listen and to show the variety of ways. I'm just curious, what are some of the the things that autistic individuals, or what do you remember them saying about the first iteration of whole body listening, Larry, and why that didn't work for them?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, piggybacking on what you just said, you know, at first when I was hearing about this, I was just like, so, you know, I heard the words shame and harm and, and, And I was like, oh my gosh, like that is so not where I'm coming from. Like the, you know, as a compassionate person and therapist, I was so, and that those words were so jarring to me, but I'm like, I need to listen and and learn about what that is all about. And. And then when I started thinking about it, you know, I don't listen in these ways. You know, I have this beautiful window that I'm looking out here. Uh, you know, but when I look at, you know, straight in somebody's eyes, it can be super overwhelming, and I can think about, you know, that person, and I lose my train of thought and whatnot. But when I'm looking away, it just, you know, I can think so much clearer, and it's just my own thoughts and brains and what I'm trying. My brain, brains, brain. brain um, my own thought and brain to be able to. I'm really focused and be clear in what I'm communicating. And I am constantly asking people, you know, when I'm doing conversations or interviews or phone meetings, if it's okay if I'm, you know, on my phone and pacing or walking, because that's just how I process and learn most effectively is by movement. And So I know that this can seem a little bit overwhelming for teachers because they have a classroom of, you know, 25 to 30 plus kids, sometimes most of the time without other adults that are helping. But if we really think about what the goal is, which is to be able to listen and process information, it's not about having a kid sit still and look at you. It's about helping them learn how they're going to obtain that information best. And so the foundation of this can start, you know, by learning about regulation and what it is And this is, you know, the foundation of some teachers say oftentimes too, like, I don't have time to teach these things, or it seems like it would get out of control. But realistically, this is the foundation and you're going to get so much more. Out of your children and learners if you lay that foundation solidly, just like a house that won't tumble down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not about having a classroom full of kids doing whatever they want. We absolutely need to be thinking about the fact that you can't stand in front of Johnny just because that's the best place for you to see the, the board and the lesson. It's, you know, there are people around you and we do need to think about that as a classroom culture. And, you know, you can fill out the new whole body listening. How does your body help you listen best poster or worksheets as a classroom too? Like this works Mm -hmm. for you, but how is this going to fit into our classroom culture? And then that's a whole discussion in itself, in terms of laying that foundation so that then you can build each individual student's little home and house, but also the home and house of the classroom together, thinking about each other.
0: Yeah. And I, that you're reminding me of a question I just got earlier this week when I was um, talking to teachers, and one asked, how do we explain to all the other children in the class when one child has a meltdown or has a lot of dysregulation and behavior, how do we explain that? And I think if you've laid the foundation of everybody solves their problems and regulates their emotion and pays attention and listens all in these neurodiverse ways, if there's already, that's what I talk about a lot, but how do we talk to kids about their neurodiversity? If that's already the foundation and of your classroom culture, then when you do have a situation that hopefully is a little bit of an outlier, like it's hopefully it's not happening every day, but um, that you can explain that child, that's what your your peer does when this happens. If that same thing happened to you, you might just sigh and walk away. We all have a different threshold for processing our emotions, just like we look different when we're listening. Um, so I love this. I love that it's going to be, it can be taught as a classroom, social, emotional activity. Have you gotten any responses or or is anyone piloting this yet? Like what's, what's the word from on the ground with teachers?
1: Yeah, we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback and, you know, honestly, we don't care what you do with the whole body listening. You know, we don't care if it's our poster or if there's other, iterations of regulation over compliance. We're just trying to support the evolution of not creating these rigid standards and rules that do put kids in a box and make them feel, you know, cognitively overwhelmed and shamed and then the harm comes with low self esteem. So our mission is to just continue to share this information and, you know, And just be looking at this in a different way. And so, yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive in terms of the shift and the providing of something to take down the old and do something different, as opposed to just saying, don't do that. You know, we really wanted to be able to say like, okay, here's how you can do it differently. And again, I'm saying we don't care if it's our new poster or if it's something else that you want to create you know, do whatever works for you and your classroom culture or home culture. It's just thinking about this in a different way and not thinking about it as, you know, enforcing compliance and conformity, which then help makes kids feel like they can't be their true selves, and mm-hmm. they ended up end up shoving down what really works for them in a masking or camouflaging way, which is not helpful in the in mental health and academics overall.
0: Right. I mean, it's obviously not helpful for mental health, but we literally know from brain research that when you're spending all of your energy uh-huh. doing something that's inauthentic to your nervous system, you can't access, you can't pay attention as well. Mm -hmm. You can't, you're not as engaged. You can't access the learning as well. So it, it fights against all the things we're trying to do in school to educate children. So we have to figure out um, honoring everyone's nervous system within the classroom culture and helping teach kids to ask for what they need within the parameters, of course, of, of being compassionate with, with their peers and their classmates. And, I mean, I love this evolution of this idea because I think that it's just the beginning, I think, of educators understanding, and parents understanding this in a different way. And if anyone has... um, is thinking about some of my resources. What you're reminding me of is I my one of my free resources is called the Regulation Roster. Mm-hmm. Um, for any teachers that feel overwhelmed and keeping track of all the different needs their kids have, I have a free download that is in a roster format, but you can put all your kids' names on it, and then you describe each of them. Um, and it's just a quick way at the beginning of school years, usually, to get to know your kids. But this is an, an awesome the poster as well as—what I, I love about the poster is that it has the image of the whole body on it. So it also helps kids know it's not just about my bottom being in a chair mm-hmm. or my legs needing to tap. You know, it's it's my whole entire body that has, um, you know, connections to how I'm feeling and how I'm able to regulate in order to listen.
1: And I we I want to just mention, too, that some people say, well, we wanted Larry to go away. And we did, too. But people in our focus group um, said, actually, we think that it's good that you use Larry because it'll ca- capture attention for something that's familiar. Mm-hmm. So then it's just like, you know, teachers are like, oh, I already have my listening poster if it looks really different. But they're like, oh, wait, Larry has a new poster. And then they'll check it out and learn a little bit more. And mm-hmm. we have some blogs on our website, too, that talk a lot more about what listening is and what it isn't. You know, it's not something that you can see on the outside. It's, you know, processing in the brain. And so much more is going on with interoception, like we mentioned, and emotional regulation and whatnot on the inside. So really just helping teachers understand what it is and what it isn't and what processing really is. Because our ultimate goal together as educators and caregivers is to help our kids flourish and learn and thrive. And listening is a huge part of that.
0: (laughs) Huge part of that. So um, I feel like you've already answered this, but anything else you would want teachers to know?
1: You know, you're not alone in the struggle to figure out classroom management. And um, this is not meant to be put on your plate as more. We're really just trying to bring light to what is really going on when kids are asked to do things that are actually inhibiting their innate ability to listen and learn and so just taking that into consideration thinking about regulation as the foundation and creating a toolbox for listening for social engagement for working in small groups for being able to navigate these situations from classroom to classroom or from you know recess to focus time all these different things the foundation is regulation and the more that we focus on this, the more outcome we'll see in terms of them be able to, being able to attain their own specific goals and then demands and tasks also within the classroom environment. So just taking that step back and being open and realizing this that this is the foundation and where we can work together in helping teachers and educators sprinkle this in so it doesn't feel like more on their plate. And so where they feel like They have to gain that control and create these standards and these rigid rules for performance and compliance, which actually harms our kids and inhibits them from truly calming their nervous system, advocating for themselves and being the independent uh, learners that we want them to be long term.
0: Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This was so wonderful to be able to ask these questions, but also um, get into the nitty-gritty of the evolution of some of these ideas because we are all still learning. That's why I call this podcast Learn With (laughs) and not Learn From (laughs) Dr. Emily. Um, And so I would love to hear anyone's thoughts who are listening. Um, You can contact me or Elizabeth. So where can people find you, Elizabeth? Um, if you want to contact me, it's info at
1: elizabethsodder.com. And um, my website is elizabethsauter.com. And you can find the Whole Body Listening, Larry resources, the new um, revised ones over there. And there are also articles on there. My website is more geared towards parents. And but I do a lot of work with educators and teachers as well. And there's the more blogs available on the Everyday Regulation website, which is the, a collaboration with Kristen Wilson and McAllister Nguyen, and what you said is, you know, no better, do better, and I'm happy to be that spokesperson for a humble therapist and parent. You know, I wish I had known this back in the day when my kids was being, you know, held back from recess, you know, and his name was being put on the board and he was being benched for recess. I mean, I had a lot to say about that back then, but really thinking about his ability to listen and learn in a small group or larger group environment. And I wish I had known and had this light bulb moment years ago, but here I am now and appreciating everybody who's supporting us in getting the word out there, because that's the, we've done the work and we're doing the work in providing these resources. And, but now we have to let people know and really continue the uh, ripple effect of getting the change and need for change out there. So thank you so much for providing this avenue, for doing that, I'm really grateful.
0: This has been Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit com or read my substack at com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.